Hello, and welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. Well, hello, hello, hello. I'm so excited to be back and talking about a new story. And I wanted to, before we get into this, tell you that this is a seriously gory episode. So if you have kids listening or if you have a weak stomach, no judgment, obviously, because I have lost it almost on some of these episodes because they're so gross. Um, This one's going to be pretty gross. So um, keep it in mind. Maybe when we hear things happening, we just skip or maybe it's just not the one for you. But either way, without further ado, we are telling the story of Sonny Bean. Enjoy. Imagine that you are traveling to see your family in Scotland in the 1600s. You've reached a stretch of Scotland near the sea that's rugged terrain and often fought over lands. Have you in your thoughts about the state of the kingdom? The area of Haddingtonshire had been fiercely fought over during the War of the Rough Wooing, where Scotland broke with the Catholic Church for eight years. This war was like any war in the 1500s in that it was brutal and long. But the Jacobites were beginning to rise up again, and talk of rebellion and war were beginning. You've got this on your mind as darkness descends on the carriage outside. The rocking of the carriage and the sounds of the horses clip-clopping on the ground lull you to sleep as you begin to think about how close you are to your family now, only nine miles or so from Edinburgh in the Ayrshire countryside. Just as you drift momentarily to sleep, you hear commotion outside. The driver let out a surprised cry, and the carriage comes to a complete stop. You try to look outside, but all you see is darkness and the dim candlelight of the lamps outside the carriage. Suddenly, the door opens and a hook stabs you in your mouth. Blood is gushing everywhere because it hit the back of your throat, and you feel yourself being dragged out of the carriage as what feels like twenty fists are beating down on your head. A knife drags across your stomach, and you feel warmth and pulling as a large group of people descend upon your body. Then, black nothingness. The children of the clan pull the man's body onto a cart as the adults go through his trunk, taking whatever looks saleable and useful. The driver's body is underneath the passengers, but he wasn't carrying much for the children to loot in his pockets. They're more interested in the meat anyway. The adults quickly find luxurious clothing, a bag of money, and a few trinkets to take from the scene, and they, with their children, slink off into the inky darkness. Dinner awaits. Sixteenth century Haddingtonshire, now known as East Lothian, is a land at this time caught in many wars, 
Its people are tired of the constant soldiers tramping through the villages, destroying what they worked so hard for. But it does create industry, and for the Bean family, it puts food on the table. The patriarch of the family, and I hesitate to say this, Mr. Bean, (laughs) is able to provide for his family by digging trenches and trimming hedges. It's honest work, and it puts a meager amount of food on the table. His oldest son even began working with him, and one of his younger sons was about to start too. He had his doubts about Alexander, though. He always seemed very quiet, but somehow devious, and his childhood nickname was Sonny, and that's how the family still referred to him, even after the incident with the cat. Sonny claimed never to have touched it, but it had been dismembered and appeared to be partially eaten. Maybe, though, it was another animal after all. Sonny had blood on his tunic, but that could have been from what he said it was, just from finding and trying to move the cat. Still, though, maybe the work would help him. Well, that's what his father thought. Sonny was not, as it turned out, interested in digging trenches and trimming hedges. He had started a romance with Black Agnes, a dark-haired woman known for being malicious and evil to everyone around her. Sonny quickly decided that working honestly for a living just was not for him, and it wasn't long before he decided to leave his family home and create a life with Agnes. Well disappointed, his family didn't see him anywhere in town, so they must have assumed he'd left the area entirely, because from accounts we have at the time, they didn't seem to know where he was. As it turned out, Sonny and Agnes hadn't gone far. They found an abandoned cave and started their lives together there. They would rob travelers on the roads outside of town, only ever in the cover of night, and they made a living that way. While he did have a job for a little while as a tanner in the town, it just didn't stick and didn't make as much money as robbing people did. So he did come up with a problem at that point, though, that when you rob somebody, they remember who you are. So somewhere along the way, he decided to not just rob people, but kill them. It just became more efficient to get rid of the people they robbed outright than to risk being outed or being seen in town. But then they started having children, 14 in total. Even with thievery, it was hard to put food on the table for them all. So Sonny and Agnes began to bring the bodies home and cooked them for their family. Some of the parts that weren't immediately edible were pickled, and some were thrown into the sea. Some parts would wash up on the shore, leading people to believe that the missing travelers, because by this time there would have been quite a few missing travelers, were killed by animals. The victims being travelers also helped Sonny and Agnes avoid detection when so many of them went missing. Usually, the last people who saw these folks alive were innkeepers and other travelers, some of whom would be tried and convicted for the missing people's deaths. And not just convicted, they were hanged for these people's deaths. So time wore on, and people kept going missing and ending up in pieces along the coast. 
25 years would pass, and the missing began to amount up to over a thousand people. The Bean clan themselves would keep having children, and then the children began having children too, with each other. The clan would grow to 45 strong in these years. And if you're asking yourself, how did they not get caught? Well, they really only went out at night. And even then, it's not like they were going into town to discuss the state of the kingdom with folks. They not only were murderous cannibals, but it's likely they looked the part too. The areas around their cave were searched several times, but the cave was always dismissed as impossible for human habitation, and thus was never searched. Another thing in their favor favor was that none of their victims ever survived to tell the tale. And of course, they didn't attack every single day or even every single week, so it did seem like it could be random. But one night, that changed. A large fair was going on in a neighboring town, and fairgoers were happily coming back from it during the night. The Beans knew this was too much of an opportunity to miss, and headed out to find travelers who weren't with a large group. They encountered a couple on two horses who seemed like easy enough targets, so the clan swarmed in. It was a man and a wife, and the man wasn't just a merchant or an elderly traveler. He was trained in combat and carried a sword and a pistol. This was enough to give the Bean clan a scare. And while many of them were run off in the scuffle, the man's wife was unfortunately unseated from her horse. He watched in horror as she was quickly disemboweled, and a group of children began to eat her raw. Now, while many of them were scared of the pistol, keep in mind that the pistol he shot, though uncommon, um, could only be shot once without having to reload and prime and do all of uh, that sort of thing to get it going. So it wasn't something you could use in a quick battle. Um, The sword would probably be a little bit more helpful in in that case. So while it did scare off a few of them, some of them were still around and it probably wasn't the easiest thing to do to fight off a group of ravenous cannibals who part of them were eating their his wife, um, especially when he had one hand that was already busy with the sword. So the pistol was really probably only a one shot thing. But during the scuffle, another group of fairgoers walking home heard all of this and decided to stop and help fight off the attackers very kind of them. The man gained enough ground to get back onto his horse and try to trample the attackers. This intervention was enough for the family to retreat, leaving his wife's mutilated corpse as evidence. The horrified husband quickly went to the magistrate with the story and told them of a cannibalistic family eating his wife alive. And this was enough to get the king involved. And though some accounts say that it was James VI, it doesn't really work with the timeline of the story because his reign began in 1603. And this supposedly takes place in the uh, 16th century. So it doesn't really work, but who knows? Whichever king it was, he sent a group of 400 men and a few bloodhounds to find the murderous group. And think about why, too. And you're like, why did the king get involved, really? Was this really that big of a deal? First of all, yes. 
this is not the country. This is not the United States. This is a small country. And this would have been a hugely unbelievably brutal crime. And it's not just that it's this one heinous crime, but consider that around a thousand people had gone missing up to this point. This was an area plagued by murderers, by serial killers, you might think. And if we think about the hysteria that surrounds a city when we hear that there's a serial killer or something, it's, it's very scary. People had been already wrongfully hung and executed for the crimes that this family committed. So I would have involved the king too, were it me. So the bloodhounds that were part of this group led them to this cave, which again, really looked uninhabitable. And if you see the cave in pictures, it doesn't seem like people could live in there because the high tide fills it up each day. I think it's a twice a day. It's right on the beach. Actually, super picturesque. I mean, if I were to look at this beach, I would never think, oh, a group of cannibals lived here in the 1600 or the 1500. Never would that come to my brain. <laughs> Because it really is just ruggedly gorgeous. But inside the cave isn't just a cave. It's a cave system of over a mile, featuring a lot of side entrances where you could easily go in and out of and not be in the main cave area. So it wasn't as uninhabitable as previously thought. And soon the bloodhounds rushed in at the scent of the decaying flesh inside the cave. They found horrors beyond belief. There were cook pots with various body parts in them, jars of pickled body parts, some of which were distinguishable and some weren't. In addition, they found piles of jewelry and other goods that would have belonged to the travelers. The group was easily overpowered and captured, and the Bean clan was then taken to Tollbooth Jail in Edinburgh. And though Scotland even now is renowned for its justice system, I think it first came around in like the 1200s, um, the king didn't see a need to try them. The clan didn't put up a defense anyway, and after counting up the crimes of theft, murder, and incest, I mean, it was just too much not to earn a capital punishment for them all. So they were removed to either Leith or Glasgow, I'm not sure, but in, either, in any city, either one, Alexander Sawney Bean, along with 26 other men in his tribe, ostensibly his children and grandchildren, although I'm sure somebody else joined at some point, I mean, you don't get to be that many, really, in 25 years? I don't think so. So they were the first to be executed. And my babies, this was the Middle Ages. The execution was not just a beheading. All of them had their genitals first cut off and thrown into the fire in front of them. Then their arms and legs were sawed off. And I think their hands and feet were sawed off first, and then they took off the arms at the shoulder. And it, they left them to bleed to death. Sonny's last words to his family and the world watching were, quote, it isn't over, it'll never be over, end quote. The next day, Agnes and her daughters gathered 
after having watched the men of her clan, her husband and children, be executed in a brutal fashion. Her and her daughters and her granddaughters now took the stage to be burned at the stake. The women totaled 22, and that was the end of the Sawney Bean clan, as it's told. But is it real? That's the question, right? These are old stories. There's not a lot of documentation of the 1500s. I mean, there's some when it comes to royalty and things that went on with the government. But, you know, this was kind of in between all that. Definitely far from royalty, but it does involve the king. So you'd think there would be something. But there are a few mentions. So let's go over what's true. It's true that the area now known as East Lothian was war-torn, and in the 1500s, that was still true. There are documents running back to the 1600s that reference Sawney and his murderous clan, but he wasn't the only clan leader of thieving cannibals around at the time. Yeah, for real. (laughs) That's the funny thing. Well, not so much funny, but interesting at least. We have Andrew Christie. He was a butcher in the mid 1400s, excuse me, when famine struck Perth. Meat was too expensive to sell to an already poor clientele, and that's even if you could get it. And part of what contributed to this famine was that there were several diseases affecting cattle and sheep, which made the meat that was available dangerous to eat. And not only that, there was a lot of flooding going on in the land, and it was happening so often that the food was hard to grow. So it was a dire time in Scottish history, and Andrew felt it strongly. He eventually got desperate and joined a group of marauders, God, I love that word, marauders, stealing from caravans, traveling the foothills of the Grampian Mountains, which I also love because I think of like Grandpa Mountains whenever I read that. But anyway, ADHD side notes are null and void. Let's move on. He and his group would stop riders and carriages by running or riding up next to them and using that hook on a rod or a cleek to catch them by the mouth and pull them off their horses. Right then, Andrew would use his butcher skills to chop up a fresh meal out of the travelers and their horses. Christie's legend began to grow, and he took on the sobriquet of Christie Cleek, with cleek being kind of a, a different pronunciation of crook or hook on a rod, crook. It always makes me think of by hook or by crook, and and neither here nor there. It's just interesting. So legend isn't always what it's cut out to be, right? And with his type of crime, it was only a matter of time before the law of the land caught up with him. A team of writers from Perth dispersed the clan, but it's said that Christy Cleek got away and began life elsewhere under a new name. Another tale, told by author Nathaniel Crouch in 1696, relates the story of a man who was executed for eating children, and his wife was executed along with him for the same. They even ate their own children, and thankfully their one-year-old daughter was saved from their hands at the time of capture. She was taken to Dundee to be raised away from the notoriety of her parents' actions. But at 12 years old, she killed and was accused and condemned for eating the person she killed. 
Many people gathered to follow her wagon to her execution, and she was impenitent in her actions. After the jeers and insults thrown at her became too much, she angrily turned on the crowd and said, "'What do you thus rail at me, as if I had done such a heinous act, contrary to the nature of man?' I tell you that if you did but know how pleasant the taste of man's flesh was, none of you all would forbear to eat it. And I gotta say, hard disagree there, kiddo. That's, sorry, no. So this story actually was true. It was confirmed to be true by Scottish historian and philosopher Hector Boyce. And another story about Sonny came up during my research. As far as Christy Cleek, I'm I'm not sure if that's true either. It's possible. It's very similar to Sonny Bean in that we don't have anything that really corroborates the story. Like, where are the names of the victims and things like that? So, um, the one about the girl was true, though. So, another story about Sonny came up during the research, and it seems that one of his daughters was not cut out for their carnivorous cannibal life. She left the cave and went into the nearby town of Girvan, not too far away from Ayrshire, where her family was active, and she became entrenched in the community there. She planted a tree and lovingly called it the Harry Tree. Once her family's crimes came to light, though, the people were so angry that they took it out on her. They went to her house, dragged her out of her house, and hung her on the branches of the Harry Tree. So... Yes, it's possible this was a tale that was true, but it's also possible it's a mix of all of these god-awful cases of cannibalism in Scotland during a time when war and famine made food extremely scarce. The Swanee Bean story really only got worldwide traction, too, after it was published in a sensational-type book by Dorothy L. Sayers called Great Short Stories of Detection, Mysteries, and Horror, in 1928. This book was an instant bestseller, and it was reprinted seven times in the five years following its release. That's huge. In 2005, a historian named Sean Thomas took a good look at some of the newspapers and publications at the time of Sonny Bean's crime, and none make any mention specifically of disappearances of people. Typically, when you have these mass murders or you have these serial killers, the victims are named, and it gives a little bit more provenance to the story. So it's unlikely, honestly, that they killed thousands. I mean, maybe maybe 20, maybe 10, for it to be to that level, where they would be hunted down and just executed for their crimes, maybe 10. But I'll leave it to you to decide. I'm on the fence because it could be real, but in a much more subdued number. But it very well could be an amalgamation of the stories going around at the time. Who knows? Maybe one day we will. But I do have two interesting things to say. One is that if you are familiar with the Russ Craven film, The Hills Have Eyes, it was inspired by the story of Sonny Bean and his family. And I'm sure quite a few other horror movies, but that one in particular always got to me. It was always terrifying. And now I know that this is what was the inspiration, and I I get it. (laughs) The other story is that there was somebody who lived in that cave up till 1980 actually in 1975. 
His name was Henry Ewing Torbett. He was born in 1912 and worked until he was 33 as a very successful banker in Dundee. At 33, he found himself extremely well-off and engaged to be married. But somewhere along the way, right before the wedding, he decided that he wanted nothing to do with any of it. He left his life and his fiance to live in Sonny Bean's Cave, otherwise known as Benane Cave in Ballantrae. Not much is known as to why he walked away from everything, but it is known that he was a proud man who lived off the land and from what food or tobacco was left out for him on the windowsills in the village nearby or on the rocks of his cave. He became known as Snib the Hermit and lived 30 more years on his own terms until his death at age 63. I was reading an article and it talked about these boys who had fun. This is Reader's Digest, and the author was Sean McBride. They grew up around this hermit, and they said, or he said that when he would see him when he was young, he thought he was a tramp, and his mom would get mad at him for calling somebody a tramp because you're supposed, she raised them to respect everyone. But as they knew him as the hermit, they would play alongside where he lived, giving him space, of course. Um, they realized that he was well-respected. He had everything he could possibly want to survive and died on his own terms. And at the end of the article, he asks whether Snib the hermit was perhaps the wealthiest person that he had ever met. So that is the story of Sonny Bean with some extra tidbits added in. Please let me know, do you think this is real? Do you think it's fake? I I don't know. I really don't. But in any case, the land around there is just stunning, and I would love to go visit it um, just to be all around all of that nature and just the beauty of the terrain. I'm going to put up the Instagram post about this. I know I'm late on the last one, so I'll put that one up too. And sound off in the comments. Let me know what you think and if you have any other stories of cannibals around this time. And I think, again, the time of famine really brings it out of people. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. Um, in any case, y'all have a great Thanksgiving. I'm recording this right before Thanksgiving. So have a great Thanksgiving. Shop on Black Friday. Small business, business Saturdays coming up too. Make sure that you... Um, shop at your local businesses, make sure that these people with families and people in your community that you can affect and change their lives with the money that you spend, make sure you shop with them. Small Business Saturday. All right, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Again, rate and review the podcast. That really helps me get found and share it with your friends. Let people know I am found everywhere. I'm on Spotify. I'm even on Audible, you guys. Um, rate and review because it really does help me out. And make sure you follow me on Instagram. I'm at Historical Paranormal. I would love to hear from you. Happy Thanksgiving and thank you again for listening. Mm-hmm.